John 11 is where we'll be this morning in our study of God's Word. And as you're turning there, special invitation for tonight. It is a a preaching and praise night. So there'll be a lot of singing tonight uh, and preaching from uh, some of our pastoral interns here. And so I really hope that you'll be able to make it uh, as we gather together as a church to hear the preaching of God's Word and respond in praise. I love that about Sunday mornings. We get to do it again tonight, especially as we encourage some men who are aspiring to pastoral ministry. And so it's a cool privilege that our church has. John chapter 11. Probably the most popular chapter in the entire book. The resurrection of Lazarus. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16, which is kind of like the preamble to the entire event that will take place in the remainder of the chapter. And as we get there, the themes are obvious. Death, resurrection. It's one of those things that you'd be tempted to think that you don't think about very often, but it rushes into our minds more than we could ever realize. I mean, just this past week, not because I'm reading John 11, but just because of the providences of life, I've been forced to contemplate death in a myriad of ways, some lighthearted, some serious. It started on uh, Monday uh, when I took a flight out to Los Angeles, and I don't know what it is. Anytime I get on a plane, I have this thought when it's taking off, I could die. <laughs> I don't think it's a fear, it's just a reality. I always text my wife, the last thing is, that you know, I love you, taking off. Um, while on that flight, interestingly, I was able to access text messaging, and I was getting uh, messages from my mother saying that they think that my dad had a heart attack. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> Thankfully, we found out that that wasn't actually the case. It was a post-COVID-related kind of thing that threw off the EKG, but the point was, I mean, here I am thinking, okay, my life's fine, but what about my dad's life? Uh, Through the events of the week, because of travel, I decided to move my day off and coincide it with a point where I could take my kids uh, to Busch Gardens, and we're roller coaster fans. That's another time when I think I could die. (laughs) You know, the ones in particular that will like hang you over at 90 degrees and you're like, this is it. This could be it. (laughs) And then on the heavier side of things, it just struck me as I was sitting on the front row. Uh, Today's October the 30th. It marks the anniversary of my grandfather's death just a few years ago. It rushes in. It rushes in. You can't help but think about it. Our best attempts at processing death at times are belittlement, mockery. I don't care what your personal convictions are about Halloween tomorrow and whether you celebrate it or don't or whether your kids dress up or they do not. That's not part of the discussion this morning. But as I've had, as I've had time to process that particular holiday over the year and what I'll do in my own conscience, I am beginning to recognize more and more that it seems to be this mockery of death, this belittlement of it. Like It's almost like we're insecure. And if we can laugh it off, maybe it's just not going to happen. What then would be a Christian perspective on death? Is it to laugh at it? Do we just say it's not that big a deal? It seems to be still. The Scriptures don't belittle it. And so in light of these questions, I think that there's no other passage in all the Scriptures that better inform the believer's view of death than John 11. What I like about the verses that we're going to look at today, in verses 1 through 16 in particular, is they serve as a disclosure of death. It's kind of like a behind the scenes of what's really going on when sovereign God allows those who are in Jesus to die. 
The events, the dramatic events, if you will, uh, of verses 17 and following, we're going to cover in detail next week. They will inform our imagination. But I think verses 1 through 16 actually more inform our intellect. It's like God's letting us behind the mist, behind the veil. He's letting us know what's going on in death. Why does He allow it to happen? What's the point? Why doesn't He just eradicate it to begin with? And so as we read through these verses, I think that our study is going to unfold along some pretty easy-to-see lines. We're going to be asking a couple questions and then reviewing a couple applications. Maybe you'll ask these questions as you read with me here. I'll read aloud. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In this introduction to the resurrection of Lazarus, we want to ask ourselves a couple questions. Basically, is there some kind of design behind the death of the saints? And if so, how should we live in light of it? First question that I ask, especially as I read through verses 1 through 6, is why hold back? Why hold back? Why does Jesus hold back? Like, He could have gone and prevented the death from happening in the first place, and yet the text gives us this odd line that he stays for two days when he hears that Lazarus is sick. There's an emphasis here on on illness and personal relationship. I think it's good to review these verses in detail because they give us some insight into the heart of our Lord. He was not some mere robot, some automaton. I mean, he had affections, he had relationships. I mean, Look at verse 1 again a little more carefully. You you notice that John is giving some details here. He wants us to identify with this situation. He says, a certain man named Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, and he starts to give us some background that he assumes that his readers will be able to identify with. It's not just, you know, there was a nobleman's son who was sick. You know, this is, there's names, there's places. He gives us some events. He's personalizing the situation. He says, particularly It's in Bethany, that village that was just a couple miles outside Jerusalem where Mary and her sister Martha lived. And you're thinking like, well, would they have known who Mary and Martha were? It's interesting. John here seems to presume that his readers, although probably not yet believing, have access to some of the other Gospels. 
They've heard of Mary and Martha before. They pop up frequently in the New Testament narrative, in the Gospels especially. And it says in verse 2, just in case you don't remember, because he won't describe this until the next chapter, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You see that this is like somebody that we should know. This is somebody who has a close relationship. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who has such a close relationship with another that they would pour expensive perfume on their feet and use their hair to wipe it off again. And yet that's the level of relationship that this particular family had with Jesus. They were close Uh, They were friends. Notice how the sisters even sent for him in verse 3. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Jeremy Rennie was here and he was explaining for us the differences between um, Eastern cultures and Western cultures? He talked about power distance. He talked about direct and indirect communication. That's fantastic Bible background that you need to have. People in Near Eastern context, especially in that time and place, they communicate indirectly. Uh, They will hint at things, and those hints are to be plain. They will say one thing, and you would not understand what they're really intending unless you're watching their facial expression or unless you're listening carefully to the words. I want you to understand that when Mary and Martha sinned for Jesus... And they say, Lord, he whom you love is sick. They're not merely like tweeting it out, FYI. They were actually intending on him to intervene. I want you to think about this, the two hints. One is they somehow have access to where Jesus is in this particular point in his ministry. It's not like they have the Find My Friends feature on their iPhones and they can see that he's all the way up in Batanea, four days' journey from where they are in Bethany. Like somehow Jesus has kept in contact with them and when he was fleeing from his life in Jerusalem and goes up to that place where John was baptizing, he saw fit to let them know, hey, just a heads up, I'm going to be over here if you need me. And so they know where to send the messenger. And they do. They take the time to send somebody on a four-day's journey with a five-word message. It's that important to them. It isn't just an FYI. It is a, please come, ASAP. And notice the second thing, the second hint for us that aren't as sensitive to social cues. It doesn't say, Lord, Lazarus, you know that guy that you have visited from time to time in Bethany? That guy, he's sick. It says, Lord, He whom you love is sick. The word for love there is the same word that uh, we even use in our, uh, like, in our state, or excuse me, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that city of brotherly love, that phileo kind of love. It's saying, your friend, your brother, the one that you're close to is sick. So in light of these two hints, we, we understand that they're basically asking him to come forward and intervene in some way to stop his, his busy ministry, wherever it is that he's at, and to come and intervene for them. They're calling in a personal favor. Think about that for a second. You think that Jesus was like an equal opportunity kind of guy? He actually had friends. He had people that he was closer to than other people. Some people had his cell phone number. And we're expected to call it. They're calling in a personal favor. They're saying, look, I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot going on. But Lazarus, your friend, the one that you love, is sick. Implication? Come do something. How does Jesus respond? Well, they know that he knows that they would not have sent this without wanting him to do something. He can read between the lines. He gets the hint. He understands that they want him to come, and in, in essence, he says, no, I'm not coming. Uh, the only thing that he responds to, look at verse 4. This seems rude, but when Jesus heard it, he said to the messenger, in the presence of the disciples, by the way, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Well, that's a rather odd assurance. Okay, I know that you understand that he's sick, but don't worry, he's not going to die. God will be glorified. Just, just rest in that. I'm not coming. <laughs> that's what he's really saying. I'm not coming right now. But here's what you can be assured of. God will be glorified. Everything's okay. It's kind of a cold thing. And you say, well, why would he invest so much in, in the glory of God? Well, Jesus assumed, though, that they would actually care that God would be glorified. Now, that's a big word we use a lot. It just basically means to shine. God would shine through this. God would look good through this. And what I love about this, friends, is that the glory of God the Father is placed on par with the glory of the Son. Don't miss it. They're one and the same. To glorify the Son is to glorify the Father and vice versa. You see it there. He says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's one and the same. He tries to assure them by saying, as devastating as this situation is, there will actually be a sense in which this will make God look good. No, I'm not coming, but God will look good. I will look good. And just come on, catch the humanity of this for a second. How are you feeling? Now, you could be an awesome theologian, but as a friend... As, as someone in close relationship, how are you feeling if you wanted to call in a personal favor, you're requesting the presence of Jesus, and He says, oh, don't worry, I'm going to look good through this. How would you feel if it's basically you hear this reply from the messenger? Hey, this is all going to work out to make God and me look good. Be warned, be filled. Best wishes, Jesus. John realizes that it sounds a little cold-hearted, so he adds verse 5. This is interesting. Jesus is not being cold-hearted. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He finds it important to add to this that it wasn't a one-way street. It wasn't just that they were really big fans of Jesus and they thought themselves closer to Him than they were. Jesus loved them. Now, the word here for love is different than the other word for love. Phileo is how they described Jesus' love for Lazarus, but John describes Jesus' love for them as agapao. This self-sacrificial love this qualitative love, this love that would be willing to give up oneself for the highest good of another. And, and notice that even the, the and there is in the original text. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It isn't just that Jesus loved them. He had a particular self-sacrificial love for each of them. He was actually looking out for their best interest. He is committed to their highest good even in this. It's not just that he's busy and he doesn't have time and he knows that all things, generally speaking, work out for the glory of God. He thinks that there is a way in which this particular trial and situation will work out for their highest good. There's no conflict we see here between God's love for God and God's love for His people. Think about that for a second. There's no conflict between the glory of God, Him being glorified in every situation, and His people being loved, even in hardship. And so now notice verse 6 though. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, this is where, thing, I, this is where we ask the question. So when He heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that blows my mind. I'm just personalizing it from uh, the, the, the circumstances this week. I told you that here I am, I'm on the plane. I hear that my uh, dad's had a heart attack, that they're rushing him to the ER. And uh, honest, like my only thought is, okay, when's the next flight to North Carolina? <laughs> the guys at the seminary where I was supposed to be teaching, they can figure it out. There's enough preachers around there. Like, I, I got to get back. Could you imagine if I just phoned it in to my mom and said, hey, you know what? I'm out here in LA. The weather's really nice. Uh, I'll get there in a couple days. You know, uh, I'll make it when I can. It doesn't work that way. You would think that's a cold-hearted son. Who would do that? 
And yet that's exactly what it seems that Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, God's going to be glorifying this. I'm just going to park it here for two days. I'm going to delay. Get the grammar, please. Because you could think, oh, Justin's dramatizing this. I'm not dramatizing this. Look, it says, verse 6, So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. His staying was predicated upon the fact that he learned that Lazarus was ill. He doesn't stay in spite of it. He stays because of it. That's why I'm asking the question. Like, why hold back? Why would Jesus hold back in the case of those that He loves? This is a valid question. Why did Jesus just wait around? Why does He not intervene in the lives of the sisters and His friends who long for Him to intervene? What is He up to? And we're going to discover in the next few verses and in our study next week that Jesus not only dilly-dallies to their dismay, but to the point of Lazarus' death. You know that Lazarus dies, but up to this point, nobody knows. All they know is that he's sick. He's just really sick. He's probably going to die. And yet we know because of the timeline and the narrative, Jesus stays just long enough for Lazarus to die. He's four days away. He gets there four days late. He waits around two stinking days for Lazarus to die before heading back to Bethany. What kind of love is this? And I think we could ask similar questions to those of the sisters. It's interesting, in the passages to come, they will both say, both Mary and Martha, verse 21 and verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever said that? Lord, if you would have fill in the blank on this terrible, irreversible, irredeemable situation, it would not have happened. It could be the death of a loved one, the diagnosis of a disease, the devastation of a natural disaster, the demise of a marriage, the decline of our country, whatever it is, you could say it. Lord, if you would have, this would not have happened. If you would not have delayed, if you would have delivered like you said that you do, like we read in the Psalms, like we expect from the book of Revelation, this kind of stuff wouldn't be happening. You said you love me. You said you care for me. Then why do I hurt? You said that you love them. You said that you love those that I care for. But if you love them, why do they hurt? Why did you allow this to happen? And so it seems that John sets up this story in such a way that we would ask the question, why hold back? Why would Jesus withhold healing or help? Why does He delay even to the point of death itself? That is a really important question, but it's not the only one. It's not the only question here. Notice how the disciples process the prospect of death in verses 7 to 16. There's more going on here than the death of Lazarus. In verses 7 through 16, you're going to see them ask questions about the death of Jesus. They're not concerned about Lazarus dying as much as they are concerned about Jesus and potentially them dying. Catch the flavor of their line of questioning to Jesus. Notice Jesus' response in verse 7. It's like he becomes divinely aware of the fact that Lazarus is dead, and it says, then after this he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Do you remember that? I, I don't know if like, this whole Judea thing is resonating with you, but like, Judea just really hates Jesus. I mean, they tried to kill him in chapter 5 and chapter 8. They tried to arrest him. In chapter 8, they tried to stone him. In chapter 10 that we just read last week, they tried to stone him and arrest him. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, those hobbits heading into Mordor. Like, who wants to do that? That's a bad plan. Why would anybody ever step into a situation like that? Or the rebellion going on a tour of the Death Star? Oh, 
oh, we just wanted to see the scenery. Like, they have no understanding for Jesus stepping back into a place with such opposition. It, it makes zero sense to them. They're reticent of death, and so they're asking, why rush in? Why would you go back? You notice in verses 7 and 8, it's almost like they're relieved that he's just kind of hanging out for a couple days. Because they know if they were to go to Bethany, they would be two miles from Jerusalem. They don't want any piece of that. So they're like, oh good, Jesus has had a good plan here. Oh, I hate it for Lazarus, but we're going to stay safe up in Bethania. But Jesus is determined to go to Judea. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, they were trying to kill you. And then now notice how Jesus answers in verse 9. It's a little parable of types. It's simple to understand. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the, the light is not in him. Now, uh, friends, it'd be easy to spiritualize this. I don't think that Jesus here is trying to be overly spiritual. This is not hard to understand. Basically, he's telling them, hey, uh, on average, there's 12 hours of daylight a day. Uh, when in that particular culture, because there's no incandescent lighting, there's no gas lighting, uh, you're kind of stuck once it's dark. You do all your work in the day, you don't do anything at night. You rest, you sleep. So during the day, you're safe. At night, you go stumbling around, because again, no no phone with light, no LEDs, nothing. I mean, it's just, you could stumble, you could hurt yourself. Jesus is saying, all right, since it's daylight, we're safe. And at night, because nobody has any inherent light source, uh, you don't do anything. So he's telling them, it's still daylight. It's still daytime. I, I still have time to go and do this. I am safe. I'm still working in a, a safe time zone, if you will, a, a time span. And he's assuring them, you don't have to be scared either. We're in the light. I mean, they should have picked up on the fact by now, though people have attempted to kill him on multiple occasions, nobody has been able to do so. He is invincible until the Father actually arranges for him to die. He cannot die apart from the Father's plan. So he's telling them, don't worry about that. It's still daylight. We've got time. We can go. Now notice verse 11, after these things, he said to them, he's going to explain why it's so important that they go into this deathly place. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I love that. He calls Lazarus our friend. And then he even uses the term sleep. You could say, oh, well, I get why they were confused because, yeah, nobody had ever used the sleep metaphor before. No, anyone of Judeo-Christian upbringing would have understood the metaphor of sleep. You ever read through the Old Testament and it'll say that so-and-so died and uh, rested the rest of their fathers? Or they slept with their fathers? That was a way of speaking of sleep in the Old Testament. In Daniel 12 too, it actually speaks of the dead being woken up from their sleep. It's the basis of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, when Jesus heals uh, that, that, little, that little girl in the book of Matthew, remember what he tells her? He actually assures the parents, she's not dead, she's asleep. She was dead as a doornail, but he viewed it as sleep because for him, it's just as simple as just waking someone up. So, but they missed the metaphor, it, verse 12 says. They said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. They're like, look, Hey, if he's just sleeping it off, you know, like after like a really hard sickness, why are we going to risk our lives by going down there? He's going to wake up on his own. You can tell that the disciples don't want to rush in. They don't want to step into this threatening situation. They don't want their Lord to die in any way, shape, or form. And so they're saying, no, we're going to hold back. And I love verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And notice verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. He stops using the metaphor and he just goes straight up, he's dead. And notice this, this is where you should be asking a question, you should be wondering what in the world's going on here. Notice, Lazarus has died, he drops the bomb, and then, for your sake, he says, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. 
Do you know that we don't have many? I think there's only three passages in the New Testament that talk about Jesus being happy. He's known as the man of sorrows, not the man of laughter. Only three places in the New Testament that I know of where it says that Jesus was happy about something, and this is one of them? Sounds monstrous. I rejoice that I was not there. I'm glad he died. How could lollygagging unto the death of a loved one, a beloved, possibly be beneficial? So that you may believe. God is glorified and they are loved when Jesus does things that create or increase their faith. Man, this is hard to get. Why? Here's the question. Why is Jesus glad to delay deliverance in the lives of His disciples? Answer, because God is glorified and they are loved when He does things that increase our faith in Him. If you're not converted this morning, you would be thinking at this moment, with friends like that, with love like that, who needs enemies? Really? This is the love that your Lord Jesus promises for those that, that, that follow Him? Frankly, friends, I don't think that we get it until we experience it. Our, our understanding of love, culturally speaking, I mean like every song on the radio is about love of some kind, but they all stink. We don't know what real love is. It's too shallow, it's too temporal, it's too superficial. This thought stunned me a couple weeks ago. I'm listening to uh, C.S. Lewis's lesser-known novel, Until We Have Faces. I don't recommend it. It's hard to understand, frankly. I mean, like, I think I can hang with some tough stuff, but, like, I still don't get it. But I did get at least the story. I don't understand the significance yet, but I got the story. There's this one particular spot where the main character, Orwell, is saddened that her sister has been taken by this supposed king and is now living in this, what she thinks is an invisible palace. She thinks her sister's gone crazy. And yet the sister swears that she can actually see the palace and she feels the love of this king. Now that part of the metaphor I get. But Orwal is so disturbed by her sister's current state that she's like, I'm going to need to do something drastic to wake her up to her situation. She even contemplates killing her or harming her in some way because she thinks that there's got to be something better than just her being happy in this fantasy. And she says this line, this is fascinating. I perceive now that there is a love deeper than theirs who seek only the happiness of their beloved. Now, I had to listen to that like 15 times, so I'm going to repeat it again. I perceive now that there is a love deeper than theirs who seek only the happiness of their beloved. Would a father see his daughter happy as a whore? Would a woman see her lover happy as a coward? So my hand went back to doing the hard thing that needed to be done. Can I modernize this for you? It's simple. Would a father see a child happy from Halloween candy but suffering as a diabetic? Would a mother see a child preserved from hard math problems but suffering as a jobless grade school dropout? Let's, let's uh, up, up it up a little bit. Would God see us healthy in body but dead in soul? Would the Lord see us thriving emotionally but suffering eternally? I'll ask it this way. Is it not possible that there is some higher good, some better existence than mere physical health and lack of emotional pain? 
That's what the text is inviting us into. There's something even better. And that thing, according to the text, is this faith in the Lord as the one who is greater than all that threatens us. It would seem that hardship and risks and trauma are all chump change compared to the ultimate good of growing in our capacity to believe. There's a satisfaction higher, a safety deeper, a pleasure purer than that which can be sensed by our fallen bodies, namely a clearer vision of the glory of Christ for now and evermore. What he's inviting us to is to cherish faith in the crucified and risen Lord, to see Him as the ultimate, not our health, not our relationships, not our safety. There's someone better than that. And and Jesus is saying, I'm glad that you can experience this pain in the here and now so you can know that which ultimately matters. And so... Jesus happily allowed the delay leading to Lazarus' death, death, and He resolves to risk His own life and the lives of His disciples. He says, I'm going. We're going to be there. It doesn't matter if they're trying to kill me. And Thomas, for one, recognizes this with inevitable irony. Here's how it ends before the main story begins. Verse 16, check it out. Thomas, that thinking one, called Didymus or twin, said to his fellow disciples, he says to the group, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, he's just resolved that they're going to (laughs) die. Okay, I guess we're just going to all die now. He doesn't get it yet. And I get it, because they haven't seen him raise anybody from the dead yet. For sure. Maybe that time when that little girl was healed was sleep. They don't know. But Lazarus is going to be uncontested because he won't just be one day dead, two hours dead. He's going to be four days dead. And in Jewish custom, the spirit would dwell around the body for three days, possibly allowing it to come back. Jesus is going to prove conclusively that he is the one that can actually overcome this greatest obstacle, this greatest enemy. And so we too can ask that question, why rush in? Why risk death? Why would he even go to this? Why would he inconvenience them in any way? Why a cross before a crown? Why must suffering precede satisfaction? Why faith before sight? Why not just preserve us from every problem and whisk us off to heaven immediately? I think that's the question that we want to ask from time to time. God, could there not be a better way than this way? I think it's a fair question. And Indy Wilson, in his fascinating book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, creative title, even more creative book, asks a similar question, but I love the way that he answers. He acknowledges that evil, that which displeases God, should be gone. We shouldn't experience any inconvenience. So it should, but how? When? I'm reading here. He's asking these questions. What is it that you are assessing Would pride and prejudice be improved by throwing away every page prior to the resolution? By erasing every character flaw, every misunderstanding and dispute? He's going to um, illustrate this with a painting. Ansel Adams once took, I mean a photograph. Ansel Adams once took a photograph he titled, Jeffrey Pine, Sentinel Dome. It's beautiful. He stood where he did, he saw what he saw, and he was able to catch it, fitting it into a small frame with only two dimensions, but nothing, uh, and nothing but blends of black and white. It's not a colored picture, it's just black and white. The sky's there, the rock, and the Jeffrey Pine. The tree grows on the left, but it is gnarled, bending even now, spreading across the picture in its struggle against the wind. Its muscled branches are frozen in their strain, unquivering. Its roots claw into stone, matching granite strength. 
There's a mountain watching from a distance wondering who will win. The tree is fought for this life, fought in this permanent, unretreating retreat. The wind will win in the end, but in this, this uncomplaining tree is noble. I see no bitterness, no resentment. We may forget, but this tree knows that the world is spinning and it has hung on to the globe through decades. I see in those roots pride and gratitude where the light sits. And then he asks this question. Hang with it for a second. You're seeing this picture. You've got this tree that's holding on for dear life to the side of a mountain. It seems like the wind's trying to blow it away. And he asks this question. Could we improve this picture? How can we make it not better but best? Remove the tension and the contrast. Remove the black. All of it. Remove the struggle and the inevitable end. Leave the white. Only white. And now it is perfect. Perfectly blank. Friends, when you remove the darkness... You can't actually see the brilliance and beauty of that which is light. It's just blank. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you walk into Sam's Club, the most expensive TVs aren't the biggest ones, but the ones that have the highest contrast ratio? You say, what's that? The darker the TV can get, the better quality it is. Higher contrast leads to more beautiful picture. Jesus allows us to even experience the darkness of death and disappointment so that we would know the beauty of His goodness and His grace. In a world of no contrast, we ask and doubt, why hold back? Why rush in? If we think that the darkness is a problem, we're like, Lord, why would you ever let us experience this adversity? Lord, why would we ever risk lives? Why would we ever experience inconvenience? That's what we ask. But in a world that embraces the dark and the light, we understand and embrace the love with its delays and its risks. We hold out for God's glory being displayed in Christ. It may have a bitter taste at the moment, but the sweet is sure to follow. It's like a palate cleanse so that we can better savor that which God has prepared for us for all of eternity. That's why He holds back. Why do we rush in? Why do we push forward into risky situations? It's for the fruitfulness of our faith. God has something good in mind for every adversity that we will experience. And so we learn of the design behind the darkness by asking these questions, and we close by investigating how to live in light of this design behind delay, darkness, and death. And I think what we have here are are two Lessons, prescriptions. In light of these questions, we have some, some, what's the best way to say it? Some affirmations, some things that we can pursue. The first one is to look for God's glory through the darkness. To look for God's glory through the darkness. Friends, God is doing a great work And He will shine. And that is what we need more than anything else. We need to see Him through whatever the situation is in the moment. I mean, we would wonder in those times if God cares. When a child dies in his mother's arms as she cries to God for help and the ambulance lies stalled two blocks away. You could wonder, rightfully, does God care? Is there something going on here? When a Christian is falsely accused and pleads with God to bring in the right evidence and it doesn't come until the case is over and the besmirchment of His good name exists, we can wonder, is there anything good coming from this in the end? We plan these these great things that we intend to do for God with our lives and it is brought to absolute nothing and we would wonder, God, I wanted to do this for You. Do You care? Yeah, He cares. 
He cares because in it, He is looking to convey His glory. Whatever you thought was the ultimate, you will realize is not. And He turns your eyes to Him as your highest and ultimate source of satisfaction. How many, I want you to think with me, how many people do you know who were stuck living for self until they experienced some irreconcilable tragedy? You know it to be true. Whether it's your cancer, or whether it's your loss, or whether it's your devastation, or whether it's your depression, God uses those moments to wake us up to what really matters. He is showing love to us by giving us the highest good. I love that language. I read it in a stinking business book. Love is fighting for another's highest good. I cannot very well improve upon the definition. Fighting for another's highest good. Fighting, there's the self-sacrifice. Now, here's the, here's the rub. Defining the highest good. When Philip and I talk about this definition, he says highest eternal good. Fighting for their eternal good. God is fighting for our highest good. What is that? Our eternal satisfaction in Him. Our trust, our dependence in who He is as our satisfaction, not anything else, not anything secondary. You look for God's glory amid the darkness. Friends, He is not. I say this so carefully because I realize that what happened with my dad could have gone the other way and frankly probably will someday. It'll happen to me one day. Statistics are still holding strong. We're 99.999% or greater I mean, you can include the margin of error, but people are still dying. It's going to happen. And yet, sometimes we're tempted to say, oh man, you know, I was late, and I found out about this car accident took place, and several people died, and God spared me. He was being kind to me. Was He being kind to you just because He spared you that? But He's not kind to you when the car accident does take place? I heard a story this week from a preacher. That, I mean, the guy's a great storyteller. He told this awesome story about this guy who's, who never complained about missing a flight. And he talked about how he tried to get on this particular flight, and he got onto the plane. Listen to this. He got onto the plane, and they kicked him off because they had overbooked it. The other guy was there. He goes back to sit on the thing, and anyway, the plane collides mid-flight. And he spared. And he said, this is evidence that God was being kind to me. I'm thinking God was being kind to whatever other Christians were up on that plane as well. He's using it all to bring us to that highest good of ultra satisfaction in Him. Look for His glory. Application 2. Live without fear. Live without fear. I don't know that we necessarily need to mock death. I don't think that Halloween is a good <laughs> opportunity for that. If you want to just enjoy it as an American tradition, fine. But don't say that you're mocking death. We don't mock death. We respect it. As we read in Genesis 3 earlier today, it is indeed the curse of sin on a fallen world. We should hate it, we should lament it, and what I think will be most encouraging to you next week when we look into the rest of John 11 is that even though Jesus knows of the higher purpose, He still experiences the pain. But all that being said, we don't fear it. Jesus is modeling for His disciples that, hey, while the daylight's shining, we're going to go. And when the darkness comes, we may stumble. But in the end, we will not fear death. There's nothing to fear. It is only the means by which we begin to enjoy our God all the more clearly. I still am stunned by the $4 trillion a year price tag that's supposedly tied to the wellness industry. Friends, be healthy, eat well exercise, get sleep, all that stuff. But let's realize that in the end, it's coming. And we should be okay with that. Christ has conquered it. 
We've seen Him do it. We'll see Him do it in the life of someone just like you and me. And we've seen it done climactically as He died on that cross for our sin and rose again, thereby defeating forever our greatest enemy, showing it can and will be done. We don't fear it. We look for His glory. We live without fear. All focused on Christ as our highest satisfaction and joy. I pray that you'll find that joy in Him alone. Will you pray with me? Father, we we long for our physical health and for the preservation of physical life here and now in the lives of those we love because it's real and it's tangible and it's good. Think of the old Benjamin Franklin thing, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Or we know the blessings of, of this life, of this existence. And, and yet the, that which lies behind the grave just seems so mysterious to us. It's this thick fog, this veil of darkness it seems that no one's come back from. And yet they have. Someone has come back through the darkness. Someone has pierced the veil. And they have assured us that we will indeed ultimately make it to the other side. And that person is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that in light of how we do feel rightly threatened by death, that we would find even more joy, more hope, more satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. Or for those today who do not have, Lord, that kind of assurance in face of upcoming death, Lord, give them faith in Jesus today. May they be saved. And for those of us who are already in Christ, may we continue to look to Him in time of threat and despair and need and trial. Or even when you wait, even when you delay, even when things seem dangerous, may we see you as better. We find our satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.